Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for joining us. And we're going to start this week's program with the latest on what is undoubtedly one of the biggest IT issues in the defense space in recent years. The upcoming Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI, procurement, and of course is the cloud contract that's worth up to $10 billion over the next 10 years. The Pentagon has prevailed in the first of what are likely to be several legal challenges to JEDI. The Government Accountability Office roundly rejected the arguments made by Oracle in a pre-award bid protest and then released the full text of that decision about a week later. The document is an interesting read. Even if the protest didn't change the course of the procurement, it did produce some on-the-record testimony from DOD officials that goes above and beyond what they've said publicly about their plans for JEDI so far. For example, we know now that the department is planning to move up to 80% of its applications to the new cloud infrastructure once it's up and running. That, of course, is a little bit contrary to the message senior officials have been trying to send in recent months when they've emphasized that the contract will only cover about 20% of DOD's overall spending on data hosting. That decision also produced some more revealing explanations for why the department has decided to go the single award route for a contract this large. But this all assumes the contract makes it through the procurement process without getting derailed by another bid protest, and that is by no means a sure thing. IBM still has a pre-award protest working its way through the GAO process, and more protests are likely to follow once an award is finally made. To get a sense of the legal issues involved here and what is still ahead, I talked with Lauren Breyer. She's an attorney at the Federal Practice Group, where she specializes in federal procurement law. Let's just talk about the GAO opinion as a whole. I mean, I I guess my reading of it as a layman is that GAO is pretty deferential to the government here. I mean, they they basically just said, yep, that explanation sounds reasonable to us. Is is that a fair reading of the ruling? And, And if so, is it at all surprising, given the issues that were in front of GAO? No, I mean, to me, it's not a big surprise. I mean, I I felt like this was going to happen just because of the deference that's given to the government and their drafting of their requirements. They're given broad discretion. So here, I mean, the fact that they've made that decision to do a sole source award, I mean, that's within their discretion as long as they provided reasonable, reasonable support in the um, response to the protest. I mean, most likely GAO is going to rule in their favor. And I mean, it looks like they did find reasonable support for the sole source, which most likely is bound up in the fact that it's a more secure way of going about the award. So um, in that sense, they found reasonable support, they ruled in favor. And I think the the big issue is going to be at the the post-award protest level. That's when... um, the problems are going to start. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But just to the deference point, I, I learned something new about the FAR reading the decision, which is that the government can get around the, the general preference for multiple awards if they can just simply make any kind of case, really, that uh, multiple awards would not be, quote, in the best interest of the government, which is a very broad exemption. Right. And I think that's a, uh, one of the reasons why they're given such broad discretion is the GAO does want to trip up the government like in the early stages. Uh, I mean, they want these awards to go through as quickly as possible. And that's why there is that broad discretion that's given to the government in their drafting of their requirements in the early stages and why it is so challenging to file a pre-award protest. Yeah. So what would have what would Oracle have needed to, to convincingly show in order to win a pre-award protest? And, and how are those those factors different in a post-award? At the pre-award protest level, they really want to show that, um, 
I mean, the requirements are unreasonable. I do think Oracle made some really good um, challenges, especially on the conflict of interest piece. But um, unfortunately, the conflict of interest piece is a easier, well, I don't want to say easier argument, but a more challengeable argument at the post-award protest level. And I know that two representatives um, of Congress also raised this concern that, um, you know, it was catered to one company specifically that's already been doing work for the government and that, that there was a conflict of interest there. Um, but at the post-award protest level, if you want to challenge the evaluation of the proposal. So it's easier to show almost like an impaired objectivity or some type of bias on the evaluation of the proposals when it's a little more tricky to show that that it's built in or the bias is built into the draft of the requirements themselves. So it kind of opens up at the post-award level that you can show that the evaluation, there's a conflict there um, versus a conflict in the requirements themselves, which is harder to challenge because there is such broad discretion in the drafting. Yeah, and, and GAO sort of said that at the very end of the opinion. They 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 say we're you know the issue of of conflict. And just to explain to folks what the what the main conflict we're talking about here is, Oracle had asserted that one of the people who had been working on drafting the requirement and preparing the procurement had later gone on to work for Amazon Web Services. So theoretically, giving them a leg up and understanding what what DoD's actual needs would be. And as I as I understand it, GAO said that issue is just not ripe. Um, Come talk to us exactly. if if and when if and when AWS wins, which which almost read like an invitation to to come file a post award protest. Or am I reading too much into that? Right. No. No. That makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, at this time, it's just allegations of conflict, um, and that's why at the post award level, it's such a, a stronger argument to make because you can actually show the objectivity in the evaluation of the proposals. Uh, or it's much easier to show than versus saying, well, we have allegations of a conflict, and you can kind of see them built into these requirements. But again, the government's given broad discretion in those requirements, so it's extremely hard to show that at the pre-award level. Not to say that a conflict doesn't exist, but it's much e- well, it's easier to show it at the post-award protest level. Yeah, and if I read the GAO decision right, that they essentially said even if there was a conflict of interest here it doesn't really matter. We're not going to tell the government how to develop its requirements, even if it was conflicted. Right, right. And that's that's right on. Um, I, I completely agree with that. I, I mean, it, it's just, it's very challenging to show that uh, there is a conflict built into the requirements, especially if they're drafted in accordance with law. Again, it's going to have to be a glaring conflict at the evaluation level. I, I mean, there's no award yet, so you can't say that there's a conflict if the conflicted person has, or conflicted company hasn't actually even received the award. I mean, what's to say that another company doesn't get it at this point? It's not worth enough to go back and then re, you know, reissue the solicitation if there's no actual challenge that you know, is ripe at that point. So, I mean, you can't say that there's a conflict until there is an award. Right. Um, just getting back to our earlier point about, about GAO being deferential here. As far as I know, Oracle hasn't said one way or the other whether they're going to take this to the Court of Federal Claims. But if they do, is there any history of, of the court being less deferential to the government than GAO in these kinds of uh, pre-award protests? Um, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends. I think that they'll do a fair evaluation. I, I honestly think that Oracle would be best serviced by not appealing the pre-award protest, but actually waiting and filing a post-award. I think that they'll... That, most likely have stronger arguments. 
on the evaluation process, and, you know, if they do believe there is a conflict of interest, arguing on impaired objectivity, organizational conflicts of interest or bias, and also unequal access to information is a common um, challenge. If they believe that Amazon, you know, is in an unfair position, um, it's, it's possible that they might have been receiving some type of information ahead of other um, offerers, and so that, you know, again, that's another argument that you can raise. I think they would have, you know, stronger post-award protest challenge challenges than to spend time, you know, before the Court of Federal Claims on arguments that, you know, the government's given broad discretion on. And the the big argument that most of the non-Amazon vendors have been making up until this point is that this procurement has always appeared to them to be tailored to Amazon. I mean, separate and apart from the conflict of the alleged conflict of interest issues we've been talking about, mm-hmm. d- does that that kind of claim that this was tailored for one vendor um, have any more likelihood of a success at the at the post award stage? Um, I, yes, I think it does. I mean, again, just pointing out those you know three major challenges that are often raised for conflicts of interest: if there's impaired objectivity, bias, unequal access to information. I mean, the the one thing that it, it does benefit the government is Microsoft. I believe now is in line. Um, for accomplishing the secret and top secret clearance requirements. Mm-hmm. So r- right now there's actually two companies that are, you know, viable for award at this point. Um, so, I mean, that, that does help um, the evaluation process by having two companies instead of one. One of the many reasons why the Jedi procurement is not completely out of the woods here, Lauren, is that not only might there be pre-award protest, I mean, post-award protests, there's still another pending pre-award protest filed by IBM I think we know a lot less about what IBM's claiming there than we knew about Oracle, but is there any reason to believe they'll have any more success than Oracle did at this stage? Um, my assumption is that the proposal that they submitted and then as well as the pre-award protest that they're challenging is in line with uh, the protest that was filed by Oracle and is most likely to get denied as well by the GAO. I mean, they're challenging the same type of requirements that are set into the solicitation. I think, again, that they would be um, more successful at a post-award protest once we get to that point. That's Lauren Breyer, a procurement attorney at the Federal Practice Group, talking with me about the legal issues involved in the bid protest DOD successfully overcame with its JEDI contract. Short break, and when we come back, we'll talk with the presumptive incoming chairman of the House subcommittee that oversees DOD cyber and IT issues. Congressman Jim Langevin joins us in just a few minutes. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we turn now to the leadership changes about to happen on Capitol Hill. Democrats, of course, will control each of the committees and subcommittees in the House of Representatives very soon. Our next guest is likely to be one of them. Rhode Island Congressman Jim Langevin is currently the ranking member of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities. He has long been focused on cyber and IT issues in DOD. He talked with my colleague Scott Massioni about his priorities as the presumptive chairman of the subcommittee. First, though, Scott asked him for a bit of a reaction on the recent news that DOD has failed to pass the first-ever audit of its financial statements. That's something that we, the, the, uh, the committee has been working on and following for, for quite some time. It's, uh, I can remember early on in my days in Congress asking about uh, certain programs, and I was on the, I was on the HIPSI at the time, and, uh, and we were talking about some 
uh, DOD programs in the uh, military intelligence program, and and uh, you know I asked about uh, in audit, or somebody had said that you know those programs aren't audited, and and, and uh, because they're not auditable, and I, you know, and I said, I said, can you repeat that? That sounds just implausible, but sure enough, uh, the Pentagon has never been audited, uh, and so it had been a priority of many members of the committee, uh, certainly myself included, to come up with a a. Uh, construct that would allow for audits to take place so that we make sure that we are uh, getting the best bang for our buck and that taxpayer dollars are being spent wisely and that we're not just spending good money after bad on programs that perhaps aren't working the way we intended. So the Democrats took hold of the House uh, in this, this most recent election. You have been the ranking member of the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee. Uh, there's no guarantee that you'll necessarily be the the chairman of that committee, but uh, I just wanted to kind of get some of your priorities for that area, something that you've worked very diligently in the past uh, uh, years. So um, just wanted to know maybe some ideas of, of things that you would like to see com- uh, upcoming when it comes to hearings, when it comes to legislation, things like that. Yeah, so I've uh, enjoyed my time on the uh, House Armed Services Committee uh, since uh, I was a freshman. Uh, on the committee and have been proud to have uh, served on the committee this entire time with the exception of uh, a brief absence when I was on the, the House Intelligence Committee uh, for a couple of years and then came back on and uh, had the chance also to, to chair a subcommittee, the Strategic Forces Subcommittee on, uh, on Armed Services. And I'm looking forward to being back in the majority now that the Democrats have uh, taken back the House and I intend to stay on the Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee, and uh, although nothing is, is clear until uh, things happen, uh, uh, I hope to be able to chair that, uh, that, that subcommittee. That being said, uh, you know, Republicans have left some important oversight work on the table, notably the issue of, of cybersecurity. I'm certainly uh, going to follow the issue of election security very closely, and uh, as you know, the, uh, the defense uh, cyber strategy was very uh, forward-leaning, and so uh, we want to make sure that we're exercising rigorous oversight in the, 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 the realm of cybersecurity, uh, and uh, certainly a big focus of, of HASC and uh, Committee on Homeland Security will be uh, working to hold the administration accountable on these top strategies, uh, uh, both the, 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 the DOD cyber strategy, the White House cyber strategy, and the Homeland Security cyber strategy. Uh, we want to make sure that they're uh, they're held accountable and that we're we're probably implementing this, these new strategies. But uh, I'm I'm also you know very concerned too about the the fact that the cybersecurity coordinator in the White House was fired ostensibly that position was eliminated by John Bolton. So how are we coordinating cybersecurity is going uh, to be an ongoing focus of what I'm I'm concerned about, and then beyond that. We're going to also continue to track the evolution of authorities delegated to U.S. Cybercom, especially those under the new uh, National uh, Security Policy Memorandum, and ensure that they uh, continue to build toward global stability in, uh, in, in cyberspace. I'm also uh, very proud to have been appointed as a member of the uh, Cyber uh, Security Solarium Commission uh, that was created in, uh, this, in the FY19 NDAA. And so uh, members are now being appointed, and uh, I look forward to that commission meeting uh, soon. But that will chart the, the overall strategy 
uh, U.S. strategy in, in cyberspace, in very much the, the first uh, Solarium Commission that was created, basically defining the strategy of how we uh, deal with the, uh, the USSR. And uh, it served, that strategy served the U.S. well going forward and the, the West well in, in how to confront and deal with an emerging uh, former USSR. And now, now the same kind of construct or model will be focused on uh, what, is, what should U.S. cyber strategy uh, be going forward. So I'm looking forward to being a part of that. Beyond that, um, we're going to work to ensure that DHS and DOD are properly resourced to protect U.S. interests, especially with uh, the, the stand-up of the, the new cybersecurity and infrastructure security uh, agency. But that had been uh, a couple of years in the making, and it's, uh, it's a great morale boost, but it gives a better definition of what uh, the, um, this new this, this uh, reorganization, what, what their mission is. And I'm very grateful for the work of the men and women of uh, DHS and, and what they're doing in, in uh, protecting the nation in cyberspace, and this uh, gives them more uh, clarity in, 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 their, in their mission. Just last two things I'll mention, then I'll stop there if that's okay. Sure. Uh, so we're going to uh, we're going to continue to track implementation of the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. Uh, that's the information sharing legislation that passed the Congress uh, to ensure that uh, there was broad and robust information sharing between the government and the private sector, and then the private sector back to the government. I can tell you that that has not lived up to its potential or what I had certainly hoped we would accomplish in, in terms of sharing. Uh, robust, robust threat information, uh, threat signatures and network speed, machine speed. That has not happened at all uh, to the level it needs to happen. So we're going to uh, continue to focus on that and ensure that the new authorizations and liability protections are meaningfully contributing to our cybersecurity. And the last thing I'll, I'll mention uh, in terms of uh, cyber priorities, uh, I've introduced uh, a data breach notification law in this Congress. I'll be reintroducing that next Congress. But uh, we have 40, we have 50 different state laws right now that govern when data breach notification has to happen in terms of uh, notifying customers that their data has been compromised. My bill would bring a, a uniform 30-day standard. It would put the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, in charge of coordinating uh, response when there is a when there is a, um, a breach that occurs and determine whether or not customers actually need to be notified. And, also incentivizes companies to uh, to do more to protect customer data. So those are the, it's a it's a, a pretty full agenda and, and uh, basket of things that I'm going to be focusing on. Like the Congress needs to focus on, but I'm excited about what's coming next in, uh, in January, and, and I'm ready to hit the ground running. That's Congressman Jim Langevin of Rhode Island, the incoming chairman of the House Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. More of their conversation about Langevin's priorities for the 116th Congress after another quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serdu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Let's get back to our conversation now with Congressman Jim Langevin. He is expected to be the chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities in the new democratically controlled Congress. He talked with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about the issues he plans to tackle. You mentioned the Cybersecurity Sharing Act. 
what are your concerns with that? Is it when it comes to not enough sharing? Is it the industry side that's not giving up what they have, or is it government that's not uh, taking in enough? Where where are your concerns with that? Yeah. So my, my hope it, it would be that that uh, most of the uh, Fortune 500 companies and a significant number of the Fortune 5000 companies would be both taking in uh, the the, the threat signatures and threat information that the government is providing uh, to them, and that then we'd have robust sharing back with, with, those, uh, with those companies, both the Fortune 500 and the Fortune 5000 companies. The reality is, right now, that by last count, uh, we had only six companies uh, sharing back with the, uh, uh, with the, the government, and only uh, uh, around 200 or so companies that were even accepting the threat signatures that the the government is offering. That just seems incomprehensible to me that the numbers would be that low, but that's the reality, and and we've got to do better. And do you chalk that up to their fear of losing proprietary information, or do do you know why there's not that much interest? It is unclear, and there's probably a variety of reasons for it, but no reason, not enough, uh, in in my mind, the reasons aren't, aren't good enough and, and you know, we need to get our arms around uh, why and how we can incentivize uh, the more robust uh, information sharing. Look, the, only, the, way best, the only way we're going to really effectively uh, protect ourselves in cyberspace, our companies, and the government is to inoculate all of us when we, when we know of a threat signature that that's, uh, could, could pose harm. I mean, uh, WannaCry and NotPetya are a perfect example. You know, if, when you had perfect... If you had perfect uh, uh, info sharing, it would not have uh, caused the damage that those that those viruses uh, that malware had uh, occurred. And the U.S. was largely not affected because we had pushed out that information quickly. Uh, other areas of the world didn't get the memo, and and the information wasn't shared rapidly, and it caused hundreds of millions, of, if not billions, of dollars in in, in damage. Also. Uh, when I ask companies what's changed with the with the law, uh, they don't have a, an answer. Oh, yeah, yeah, they don't have an answer that uh, with their, they don't have um, uh, have uh, an answer that uh, uh, what they're doing differently. And that's a uh, you know, that's a that's a softball question. And you uh, mentioned the DOD cyber policy and how that's a little more aggressive or a lot more aggressive than previous strategies. What in particular concerns you about that strategy and what do you really think you need to keep your eye on as, as when it comes to oversight? You know, it's the unintended, unintended consequences. If we are going to be uh, more proactive in cyberspace, I think that's a, that can be a good thing. Um, but uh, working with, with allies, having a you know, international coordination is is essential, um, and you know we we need to have, by the way, a, a cybersecurity coordinator at the State Department. That's another position that was eliminated uh, by the, the by the current administration. Big mistake. Uh, you know, this is cybersecurity is not just a U.S. problem or challenge. It's an international problem and challenge that we need to work on together. And having an international uh, you know focus. And having somebody at the State Department who's going to help coordinate those cyber strategies and responses is essential. And that was a major step backward. So I was I, w- I was disappointed to see that. 
the Senate also needs to act on a bill for a state cybersecurity coordinator. You know, we the House that passed the House and and it's uh, pending in the in the Senate uh, to create that position at, at the State Department, and we need to we need to see that make its way through the Congress and get it into law. Uh, one last topic I wanted to cover with you before we end here: um, the defense budget. There's been some talks about a, a possible five percent cut to the defense budget, a possible seven hundred and thirty-three billion dollar budget. Um, where would you like to see the balance between domestic spending and defense spending, and and also how DoD uses its money, uh, especially now that you have more say, considering that you're in the majority in in the House? Yeah. So first and foremost. Um Sequestration has to go away for both the House, uh, for both the uh, uh, defense and discretionary non-defense. And we need to get back to regular uh, order in, in budgeting and, and focusing on you know, keeping those programs that are effective, getting rid of the ones that, that aren't, uh, make sure we're spending dollars wisely. But uh, you know, this sequestration across the board cutting uh, is not an effective budgeting strategy. It may sound good, but, you know, uh, as as uh, former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta uh, said many times when I was with him, or uh, when he was certainly also testifying before Congress, you know, I, he says like you, you talk about across the board cutting, it's the stupidest way to budget. He says I can't build two thirds of a ship, and, right. and so we need to get back to regular order and make sure that we're we're properly uh, balanced. Where we can cut, we need to get we need to focus on getting our fiscal house in order. Uh, and but we need to make sure that we're spending dollars wisely, and that comes through the regular appropriations process and and uh, oversight of the of the Congress. And I and I just want to say that you know reviewing the president's proposal, uh, you know, uh, in, in his budget with an eye toward continued invest in innovative technologies, things like directed energy and rail guns that uh, that bend the cost curve, ensure that our service members never enter into a into a fair fight. And Ranking Member Smith has talked about uh, a more responsible defense budget, maybe something that doesn't have to cover every single base out there, right? Like the, the United States can only handle so many different things. Would you agree with that sentiment that maybe DOD needs to focus a little more um, intensely on a certain number of areas and then rely on allies for, for uh, some other uh, issues? I certainly think that all of those things should be on the table. You know, where, where allies can pick up... Uh, some of the slack and they can they can do uh, some of the work in coordination with us. You know, I'm I'm fine with that. But again, we, we want to make sure that we have a smart strategy and and we're not just throwing good money after bad. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, we the, the strategy is robust and effective. Uh, we don't want to kid ourselves into thinking that all our allies in some areas can take care of some things, uh, only to find out that they that they can't. And that's what. You know, effective coordination is all about. That's what effective oversight is all about. We're going to determine what that strategy is and uh, make sure it's uh, robustly implemented. Another primary focus of mine will be, since uh, especially being from Rhode Island and, and having electric boat uh, and uh, general dynamics electric boat in my district, ensuring that the Virginia class and Columbia class programs maintain our dominance in the undersea domain uh, and provide day-to-day nuclear deterrence as part of the uh, the triad is also going to be a top priority minus and uh, and uh, you know the current Ohio class force right now is going to begin retirement in 2027 and uh, the Columbia program uh, is out of margin in its timeline so Congress really has to work harder to ensure that we don't fall behind the schedule and suffer cost overruns uh, so that's uh, that'll be a, that's 
uh, one of the things I'll be focused on, and then, and then climate change and how it affects national security strategy will be another area of focus of mine. You just saw what happened in the latest hurricane in Florida. Uh, Tim Dale Air Force Base uh, was, uh, uh, was uh, over destroyed there, and it's going to be costly to, to rebuild those, uh, those, those buildings. And um, uh, as you know, in the, in the FY18 uh, NDAA, I put an amendment in that said it is a sense of Congress that climate change is affecting U.S. national security, uh, and it required our, uh, each of the military services to identify their top ten most vulnerable military bases to the effects of climate change and what we can do to mitigate those effects and also determine uh, costs involved with that as well. So I'm looking forward to receiving that upcoming report from the Department on climate change as a national security issue, and that, that's going to be, they'll be hopefully producing that report by around the end of the year. Congressman Jim Langevin of Rhode Island, the presumptive new chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities, talking there with my colleague Scott Massioni. One more break, and we'll talk about some other oversight matters with Robert Storch, the Inspector General of the National Security Agency. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbiv. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbiv. The National Security Agency crossed a fairly significant milestone earlier this year when it became one of the very few entities in the defense and national security space to get its own presidentially appointed and Senate-confirmed Inspector General. Robert Storch is the new IG, and he has said that he views one of his tasks as making the agency a bit more transparent. As one step in that direction, the NSA IG launched its first-ever public website just a couple months ago. Storch talked with me about what the IG's office hopes to do with that new platform, along with some broader transparency issues. I thought it was incredibly important for us to do it. Um, First of all, transparency is really a bedrock principle for all inspectors general. Um, This is a big agency. It spends a lot of uh, public money. And so I think it's important that uh, the public know that its money is being spent wisely um, and that the programs that it funds are being carried out appropriately. You know, I think it's particularly true at a place like this where a great deal of what's done cannot be made public if it's to be effective, uh, that the public know that there's effective independent oversight going on. So as you may know, a couple of months ago, we released the first ever uh, unclassified version of our semi-annual report to Congress mm-hmm. uh, detailing our activities. Initially, that was posted on oversight.gov, uh, which is the aggregator site for all the federal inspectors general that's uh, maintained by the Council of Inspectors General, SIGI. So it's there. And now that we have our website, uh, our own independent website, as you say, we have it up there as well. And we'll continue to post information about our activities so the public knows uh, as much as it can uh, that there is effective independent oversight uh, being conducted here. And the materials you have posted as of now are, are sparse. I think that report you just mentioned is the only thing there so far, which I think you can be forgiven for considering the, the site's only been up for a few days. But, but what sorts of things can we expect to see added in the coming weeks and months? 
Well, first of all, in terms of what's on the site, I would encourage people to take a look at it, oig.nsa.gov, because we do have a good deal of information about the nature of our programs, our different divisions, our whistleblower program, which is critically critically important for us. We really uh, emphasize and prioritize here that we want people to feel comfortable coming forward if they have information uh, about what they believe to be wrongdoing, and they should never, never, never suffer reprisal uh, for doing that. So we do have a lot of information on there about our activities in general. And then our semi-annual report uh, contains a great deal of information about reviews uh, and other work that were completed during the last six-month reporting period, as well as the nature of our ongoing work. And going forward, we'll continue to post uh, the semi-annual reports, an unclassified version of that, uh, along with other information that we're able to put out there about our work. So we anticipate, uh, as you say, we've only been up a few days. Uh, it's our first week, and we're, we're, we're proud of the effort, but uh, there's certainly a lot more to put on there. Yeah, and when I said sparse before, I was mostly re- re- you know referring to written reports. And, 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 yeah, no, I understood. And really, the question is, I'm wondering if you can give us some sense of you know, going forward, what proportion of your office's audit reports, investigative reports, are about unclassified matters that you could release or or at least could be rewritten, redacted so that they are releasable? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't have an exact percentage for you, but that's an issue that we are looking at. And my goal is to be as transparent as we can be in, in letting folks know. We, we obviously don't want to do anything that would harm an agency program. You know, the purpose of all those audits, inspections, special studies is to Im- assist the agency to improve its operations, to improve the economy, the efficiency, the effectiveness of what they're doing. And so we don't want to do anything that would harm those operations, obviously, particularly here at a place where the operation are, are so critical to the national security. So there's a balance there between that and achieving as much transparency as possible. But we are, we are, gonna, we are looking at that, and we do want to try to put out additional information as we can. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone would expect you to publish a lot of information about the, the intelligence oversight function that you perform. But it seems to me, at least at, you know, on its face, there are things like financial management, contracting, whistleblower reprisal that are probably not, not too sensitive that, that a lot of agencies, agencies OIGs do publish and that you might be able to as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's one thing we've, we've been looking at is, you know, there, there are different types of reviews. Some of them relate to things that the NSA does, given its very important and very specific mission. Um, and then there are other types of reviews that relate to agency operations that could occur at any federal agency, right? Uh, and it just happens to be the NSA as opposed to some other agency. And certainly things that fall into the latter category are much more likely to be things that we'd uh, be able to release. And we're, we want we want to release just as much as we can, uh, consistent with our responsibilities. And as I say, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to predict things because we haven't made those decisions on each basis yet. But we are we are looking at that, and we, we are you know our goal is to be as transparent as possible, so that people know, as I say, what's being done with their with their taxpayer dollars, um, and that the programs that they fund are being done properly. I want to go back to one of the other functions of the website that you alluded to earlier, which is you know encouraging whistleblowers to come forward and letting them know how to do that. Along with that, I think something important to mention is just the nature of being a statutory IG. I think you are the first ever Senate-confirmed, presidentially appointed IG that the NSA has ever had. And I almost feel like we should have a different name for statutory IGs because they are they are a different animal in some ways in terms of their independence, especially if you're... You know, if you grew up in a DOD organization where you're more accustomed to thinking of an IG as being an arm of the command or of the of the agency head. T- talk about the difference it makes uh, having the degree of independence that you have. 
Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, let me be clear. I don't want to say anything that would ever denigrate the work of the many fine IGs across the military and other uh, branches and, and all the rest. We and that was not my intention either, just to be yeah, clear. Yeah, I know. But I just, you know, I, they, they really do, uh, you know, great work, and we uh, cooperate with them frequently. Having said that, you're absolutely right. Um, it really was an important moment uh, in the evolution of this office. And frankly, I think for the agency, when the uh, NSAOIG was elevated uh, to be an establishment to have a, which means under the act that it has a presidentially appointed Senate confirmed IG, as, uh, as you may know, that was done according to the legislative history, uh, specifically to ensure that the office had uh, the independence necessary to ensure that agency operations were consistent with civil liberties and U.S. person privacy. And that's obviously something we take very seriously. We have a separate intelligence oversight division, in fact, as discussed in the, uh, on the website, uh, and they uh, work very hard, as do we all, to ensure those operations are, are carried out properly and consistent with all those rights. So have, being a presidential appointed Senate-confirmed IG, I th- we have the same responsibilities under the IG Act as, as those that are appointed by the head of the agency and can be dismissed by them, but because of the separate and, and greater independence under the Act, I think that enables us to take additional measures to ensure that things are being done um, being done properly. And I, I'm just curious if you, you're doing anything to, to communicate that change that has happened internally to the NSA workforce to you know, communicate that independence and encourage people to come forward. Yeah, absolutely. We've done a lot of stuff. I mean, I've been meeting with uh, leaders up to and including the prior director and the current director uh, and leaders throughout the organization and doing town halls uh, with personnel uh, throughout the enterprise to get out the message that um, the IG, uh, while we've always done great work here, I believe, at at the OIG, that we we have been elevated to this status and that with that we – we are uh, taking these steps. You know, one of the things we've tried to do is, is increase the uh, impactfulness of our work. And so we're uh, taking steps to encourage uh, leadership to become, uh, to be, to be uh, engaged uh, or more engaged regarding our recommendations to ensure that they're addressed in a timely fashion, because obviously that's very important. There's a lot of important stuff that goes on here, but we want to ensure that happens as well. And we've gotten good responses on that. So, um, so yes, the answer to your question is we have communicated that. Uh, One way, um, I think symbols matter, and this is discussed on the website, but one thing that we did uh, when I first came on board, I saw that the seal uh, that we had, the logo, I had two in my office on the wall. Uh, They looked identical. They both had the uh, NSA Eagle, and uh, the difference was around one of them, it said National Security Agency, and around the other, it said Office of the Inspector General. And given our independence, um, I thought that was not the right message to send. And so we actually put together a working group, and someone came up with the idea of using an owl, because owls are watchful and wise. And I thought that was a great idea. So uh, we uh, put together a new logo, uh, which is on our website, and it it has an owl, and the owl is looking very watchful and wise, I think. And uh, it has the, the core principles of oversight, integrity, independence and transparency, uh, which we've really been alluding to on it. So I think it's important that people understand, even from the seal on our paperwork to everything we do, uh, we're going to operate independently. Now, that doesn't mean we don't engage with the agency. You know, IGs, uh, we have to engage with the agency on an ongoing basis. We want them to be listening to what we say. We want to be credible with them. But on the other hand, we have to be independent as well if we're to carry out that function. And I think people here get that. 
That's Robert Storch, the Inspector General at the National Security Agency, talking with me about the agency's new public website and steps toward greater transparency in the IG's oversight mission at NSA. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Jim Langevin, the incoming chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities, and Lauren Breyer from the Federal Practice Group about the latest legal issues surrounding DOD's big Jedi cloud contract. If you missed those conversations, this week's program can be found in full, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD or in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 